Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodechicago.com. This is the week that we have been um, getting ready for uh, this last season of Lent. This whole season, this whole week, the church celebrates this um, amazing week in the life of Jesus, the days leading up to Jesus's uh, betrayal and arrest and trial and all of it, the crucifixion, and of course next week, the glorious resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb. This is a world-changing event that the church celebrates as the highest moment of our calendar every year. And from our place in history, of course, we know the arc of the story. We've heard the whole arc before. We know how the whole thing goes, and we are willing to enter into that despair of Good Friday, the the shock and the horror of this Messiah hanging from a cross because we know that that arc takes a turn, right? And that we will be celebrating resurrection on that Resurrection Sunday. We know what's still to come. But today, as we start into this holy week, we look now at this procession into Jerusalem and we watch as Jesus enters the city and Jesus knows full well what lies before him in this final pilgrimage into the city of Jerusalem. And even though we know the full arc of the story, we're willing to sit today and enter into the experience as we imagine it would have been for the different groups of people who were in this moment, in this scene. We call today Palm Sunday because Luke doesn't emphasize this, but the other gospel writers say that people were waving palm branches. This is a a beautiful processional that's happening in this tail end of the pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And we take a moment to observe and we allow ourselves to be willing to anticipate or to to imagine what it would have been like to be the different groups who were experiencing this, this really interesting processional at the tail end of their pilgrimage into Jerusalem. We think, for example, of the anticipation of the disciples, not just the 12, but the whole crowd of followers of Jesus who are waving these palm branches and crying out, They believe that this is their Messiah and remember to them the way that their minds were able to perhaps envision what that meant would have been bound by their time, by their geography, by their politics, by what they knew was possible in the physical realm, right? So their view of what this moment was must have been something like, yes, Finally, let's go to Jerusalem. We got the Messiah. We're going to take over the temple. We're going to have worship. We're going to get back the throne of King David. There was a different kind of anticipation that the people of Israel would no longer be under Roman rule, perhaps. They had an anticipation that wasn't how it ended up being, but we allow ourselves to enter into their excitement. Can you imagine what they thought this humble king was coming in to do? And then, of course, we can join in with the curiosity of the crowds because this is Passover week in Jerusalem. The crowds were huge. And we know, we have enough celebrity culture in our own world. How much do we obsess over something happening at the Oscars? We know full well what it is to be like, what do you think happened? What do you think is going to happen next? What do you think that should have been? What do you think could have been done differently? We know all of that. These crowds are like us. These crowds are us. 
They're wondering, who's this guy? What's he gonna do? What are they saying? Is he wrong? Why are those guys so mad at him? So we've got crowds that are really interested to watch the drama unfold. And then of course we have the religious leaders, the faithful Jews. And listen, you guys, we can't write them off and be like, hey, you guys are the bad guys. You're the ones who missed it when your promised Messiah was in front of you. Because if we have our empathetic hearts on, we know these are people who by and large, many of them, now there was, there was corruption, we see that, and we will enter into that as well. But there were many faithful Jewish people who were saying what this guy is saying. Does, I don't know what to do with this. I'm not sure if this is the kind of shakeup that I was expecting. But what you would see in some of them is like this guy could be a threat against our Jewish heritage, our culture. Because we see in this moment, some of the Pharisees are with Jesus in the crowd, right? And they're like shushing the people who are crying out, I think in part because it's like, don't make a scene. We have to fly under the Roman radar for our safety. Just make them stop saying things like king language, right? Don't upset our culture and our way of life. So we have this ability to sort of peek in on these different groups as this procession is happening. And as we watch their different responses, we're actually today gonna go past the moment of the processional and continue into the moments that Luke records as happening, happening directly after that portion that Jade just read. So we're gonna start off though, first with the processional, the, the passage that Jade just read. And we're gonna just take a moment to observe exactly how rich some of this kingly imagery was. This was language of honor and reverence, heralding Jesus as a promised Messiah. And some of the undertones can be lost, so we're going to look at some of these. Now, we set that kingly honor language, that, uh, that um, sort of a, a reign, rule and reign look that we're going to see, and we set that against our knowledge from where we sit today in the fact that Jesus walked in that processional, took that seat of honor while he knew fully what the path was really going to look like. We take those two things together, right? The, the rituals that meant so much and the fact that Jesus entered in knowing the real story. And what we have when we put those together is an amazingly humble king being honored by people full of hope, his face still resolutely set on the path laid before him. We're gonna look at some of these details, like I said. I won't reread all of it, but let's look at each portion of the passage. First, we see that um, there's a colt. Uh, the other uh, gospel writers say that this colt is a donkey, um, and that there's a colt that's been tied up. Now, just to make a quick observation, can you guys think of anywhere else in any of the gospel stories where Jesus needed a ride? Jesus walked everywhere. Jesus made it many, many miles to Jerusalem. We're talking about the last mile. Jesus isn't tired. The fact that they put Jesus on a donkey colt must have significance because the man was fine with walking. Specifically, there might be an undertone in this. I think it could, it could be. Like they keep, Luke, I think it's like five times, mentions about this colt being tied or untied that, that that part of it is important. Back in Genesis 49, uh, 10 to 11, I, um, I actually had never seen this before. I thought it was really interesting. There's this moment when um, 
Jacob is uh, praying a blessing over his sons. Okay, so Jacob being one of like the patriarchs of the faith, right? And so he's speaking about the longevity of what is to come someday. And he talks about how uh, the scepter will not depart from Judah, meaning there's a lineage to come. This rule and reign will not end. So they, they would say this is like a messianic hint or a promise that this rule and reign of our people will not end. And he talks about how this person, this Messiah, ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. So there's something about this colt that goes all the way back to Genesis, uh, this prophetic sense that there's going to be something here with this colt. And then the fact that no one's ever ridden it, uh, that just is a, uh, um, like a purity thing, right? So an animal that had never been ridden was preferred as being dedicated to God. Being set apart, there's something special in the fact that this colt has never been ridden. And then the fact that they say the Lord needs it. Has that ever struck you before? Like, just go take a colt and that that's a satisfying answer? Like, well, Melissa needed it, so okay, take it, that's fine. But what it is, is it's a hint to the fact that a Roman soldier or somebody else in a position of authority could commandeer your stuff. If they needed it, they could take it and like, well... That's enough of a reason. So there's an authority innate in the fact that he could just say, the Lord needs it. And the people are like, okay, that's how that works. So there's authority there. If we go to the next part of the passage, we see that they put Jesus on this colt. As I mentioned, Jesus didn't need a ride. Why was it important that Jesus rode in on a colt? This goes back very clearly to a prophetic statement in Zechariah 9.9 that says this, lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is king language, Old Testament prophecy. So when a conquering warrior would enter into the town that they had conquered on a chariot or on a horse, and so this is specifically interesting. There's, there's a bunch of examples in Old Testament um, of that happening, that we, we ride in, um, but a procession like this using a donkey goes back to this, Zechariah 9.9, that says that this is a, a signal of peace and yet still kingly, that this promised king is triumphant and humble. So we get that right away from the choice of animal and that they've put Jesus on this animal. And then spreading their cloaks, we see actually as well as 2 Kings 9.13, this was a gesture of honor. Like here, don't, don't even get the hooves of your, your ride dirty. We, put, we spread down our clothes for you to ride on. So all of this is really rich with language that meant we are all participating in the triumphant procession of our king back towards the land that he has conquered. That's the language, yet with this humility and this peacetime peace undertones. We then see in verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples, this is beyond the 12 again, this is all of the travelers, they all start crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's right out of Psalm 118 that uh, Sam read in the beginning of our time together. That was a psalm that was read during Passover. It would have been memorized and sung. People were waiting for that promised Messiah. And so they're singing, they're, they're attributing to Jesus this messianic hope. And then, of course, they also cry out peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you were around a few months ago, that might sound familiar from our season of Advent when the heavenly host burst forward and were crying out in praise of what was happening in Bethlehem. 
That's the same language again. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke them. Now, what that is, is the Pharisees, again, like I mentioned, saying, hey, listen, you're their teacher. If they're saying false stuff, you got to make them stop. So it's acknowledging if you're the rabbi, you're in charge. And if your pupil says something wrong, you have to rebuke them and correct them right then and there. That's what you were supposed to do. So the Pharisees are saying, don't let this happen. It's going to upset our way of life, right? Don't draw attention. But Jesus replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The hint here goes back to Isaiah 55, 12, this concept of creation itself bursting forward with praise, celebrating and praising the creator. You cannot quiet this praise. Even the rocks will cry out. So there's no silencing this kind of praise. So we have kingly themes of honor, messianic promise fulfilled, and Jesus knowing what lies ahead while this crowd is feeling one way. I imagine Jesus feeling and his face just being different um, because he knows something different. Yes, Messiah. Yes, kingly entrance, kingdom time, kingdom ushered in, but not at all as you expect it. But he accepts their honor. He accepts their praise and moves resolutely onward. So what do we do with this kingly response coming right out of this as he enters into Jerusalem? The next verse tells us, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. That's what our humble king did next. He wept. He wept over this city, this city that he loved, this city that was supposed to mean something about God's people, God's presence. He walked in in a kingly procession and wept. We hear again from a few weeks ago that same uh, tone, or we imagine it at least, of Jesus. Remember when he laments over Jerusalem and he talks about wanting to be like a mama hen who gathers up the chicks to keep them safe. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? That's the mama hen again weeping over Jerusalem. We allow ourselves in the moment of Palm Sunday to think about the anticipation of this processional And then the passion of Jesus, his heart is breaking as he walks in to Jerusalem. He's a king honored and given praise. There's excitement bubbling all around him. And as there's a sacred place to Jerusalem, right, in this piece of history, and Jesus weeps. The fact of the matter is, he's right when he goes on. And the reason he weeps, I should read that, that he goes on. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The fact of the matter is he weeps because he knows that what was meant for this beloved city is going to fall. And he's right, in the year 70 AD, within a generation, Rome's army would surround Jerusalem and destroy it in 70 AD. It's true. And the fate of the survivors was not good. So Jesus knows what is to come and he weeps. He knows the future in store. How different than what the people singing his praises around him think is coming. I think it's okay to sit in that heartache moment and to like imagine the face of Jesus 
in that processional and then to weeping. weeping. Luke then records him going into the temple and driving out the people running the market there. Christ's passion that wept over Jerusalem now changes for passion and zeal for the holiness of God's temple. And you hear the temperature rise. It's now a heartbreak to anger, holy, righteous anger. What are you doing in this holy place? Passion for the house of the Lord. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which is God's ideal for the temple, what the temple was designed to be. These I will bring to my holy mountain, give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But here when Jesus enters this holy place, this place that was designed to be a place of prayer for all nations, he finds an altogether different scene. Some estimations say that Jerusalem would have burst at the seams during Passover. This was a time when faithful Jews would take pilgrimage to go to the holy temple. The population of the city might go to like six times its normal size. Imagine what that would feel like. We live in a city. We could imagine you go downtown, now times six, like it's a hustle and a bustle, and it's a logistical nightmare, I imagine as well, but also a really good financial opportunity for a lot of businesses, right? So people have come, they've traveled, they're going to the Holy Temple, they want to offer a sacrifice, they probably didn't bring it with them, so here's a really good business opportunity. Additionally, from whatever region you're from, you have your own kind of currency, and so there's money exchangers. This is just commerce happening, but where is it happening? It's happening in this court that was designed to be for everyone. This outer court, Gentiles could be in it, women could be in it, not so the further that you go in, but this was to be for everyone to come and be near the presence of the Lord. Uh, and this is the place that was designed for everyone that had become a hustly, bustly place of business, commodity exchange, financial gain. It lost its heart as the center of worship and instead had this human commercial enterprise feeling and Jesus is not happy. And he drives them out. So in preparing for Palm Sunday, this arc of progression that I know we know, and there's something that can happen with familiarity that we can kind of think, yes, we know the story and where it's going. But for some reason, this, this year, something struck me differently. When I looked at what Luke recorded, that what took us from this processional, the kingly language, the honor, I could feel the anticipation of the people who were sort of making this scene happen. But somehow I just can't, quite figure out the face of Jesus in this moment. Like, he knows, but he's being honored and he accepts the praise. And so as I read on in Luke, I saw like, okay, so the processional happens and then Jesus weeps. I know what that face looks like and feels like. And then Jesus is angry and turns over the table. I know that emotion. I know what that face looks like. But I found myself widening out to see like, what is this? First of all, I just had to appreciate like the fullness of our God having entered in to our human experience. That breadth of emotion, you guys, like Jesus knows it all. That's the first thing I just would say really quickly. But, and again, panning out beyond just the processional to this, to this uh, arc, I found my gaze widening a little bit. Uh, Eusto Gonzalez said this, this part that I thought was really interesting to me. 
So he compared this uh, triumphant entry to another tri triumphant entry that would have been very well known to them culturally, which was that of Alexander of Rome. And he says this, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem both parallels such solemn entries as Alexander of Rome, parallels and contrasts with them. This strange king does not ride a chariot, but a donkey. He does not wear a crown of laurel, but soon will wear one of thorns. Alexander rejoiced over his conquests. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Alexander, a Gentile, entered into the temple and with the acquiescence of its authorities, sacrificed in it. Jesus will enter the temple and denounce what's being done there. That's a breadth of language around the, and emotion around these. And as we look at these three together, here's what I found myself thinking. Like this is meant to be a holy city on a hill. People meant to be set apart for God's glory. I found a, an image that's a potential rendering of what this might look like. And I know it's not a great image, but you guys, I don't know if we have a cultural equivalent for the significance of this city and this temple at the heart of it and the holiest of holies at the heart of that. If we have anything that's as wrapped up into the promises of God, the identity of a nation, the faith, politics, cultural identity, so intertwined, the, the thing that this place is meant to represent the sense of identity, the sense of belonging, the sense of the presence of God. Of course, God is present everywhere, but there needed to be a special location of mediation for the presence of God to span the gap between the fallenness of humanity. That holiness needed a gap, and that gap was here. This had a special place. This is designed to be the throne of King David in this place. All the promises wrapped up with this place. So when Jesus receives the praise of people, even though they're asking for an altogether different king, he willingly enters this city, this place that's about to reject him. He said time and time again he knows that's coming. He weeps with the knowledge that this holy place is going to be destroyed within a generation. He knows this isn't the throne he's being called to sit in. And he knows the promises of God's presence and kingdom inbreaking do not rely on this city, this temple. He knows something new is coming. He knows that. And something in my heart was like, man, if you know you're ushering in something different, yet you still weep and you still go and correct the misuse of the temple, I have to be honest, you guys, I might be like, okay, guys, never mind. I'm here. I'm doing something new. You'll see in seven days. And I would have just maybe let all that other stuff go. I got a new plan. The old one didn't work. That's not Jesus' heart. Jesus still goes in with passion for the temple and weeps over the city. Why? Recently, in my own devotional time, I think it's really important for me. Uh, a mentor said this to me, and I think it's important for all of us. But for those of us who preach and go to seminary, I study a lot for writing papers and for sermon prep. It's really important for me, that, as my mentor said, that I, I have devotional reading that has nothing to do with output at all. And sometimes God uses that in such a neat way. And I think that happened recently for me. Because in my personal devotional time, I was reading out of Deuteronomy. And this, this statement struck me. So this is the promise of God to the people of God in the time of covenant, original covenant with Moses. Okay, that's sort of the setting. And 
God says this promise to the covenant people through Moses. He says that I am the Lord your God. If you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. And I was stopped in my tracks for a second because I'm like, I actually know that verse, but I think from somewhere else. And I remembered in Jeremiah 29 through the prophet. Okay, so that was like old, old covenant promise in Deuteronomy. Here it comes again through a prophet many, many years later. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you. I will be found by you. I was like, yeah, that sounds super familiar. And I think I've heard Jesus say something similar as well. Matthew 7, starting in 7, keep on asking. You will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking. You will find it. Keep on knocking. The door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. This isn't a promise that you're going to get the prayer you prayed for. This is a promise that if you seek, you will find God. This whole book is a promise of God longing to be found by the people, longing to be found. So when I hear this promise, I will be found by you. That's what I feel like I could see this time in the face of Jesus as he was on that procession. The passion of Christ for the people of God because God longs to be found by the people. Whether that's temple presence, holy city, where the presence of the Lord is, let the people be there. And this will be ushered in through Jesus, but Jesus's passion in this moment and throughout this week, as we enter into Holy Week, this is the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ is to make a way for people to find a way to God. Jesus's passion for God's presence in and among and through the people, it can't be shaken. Even though he knows something new is coming, he still weeps over the city that is going to be destroyed because that was, that, his heart aches for it. He still is angry in the temple because it's be, the presence is being uh, made light of. It's not being taken seriously and his face continues resolutely set. And so now I can imagine his face on that donkey. His face is the face of love. It's God's love. I'll go to all ends. I will correct the temple. I will enter the city that rejects me. I will take your false testimony. I'll take your betrayal, Judas. I'll take your denial, Peter. I'll take your false claims, courtrooms. I will take political and religious corruption working together to get to an end that has no justice. I'll take your beatings. I will take the walk to the cross. I will take an excruciating death because all, all of scripture is of God longing to be found by us. I will be found by you. When I was thinking about that promise, I think sometimes we can read those verses and think like, well, if if I were finding God, that would mean I'd have a revelation in prayer about what I'm supposed to do next, or I'd have that spiritual high that other people talk about, the goosebumps in the presence of God, or, or something like that, right? We think of what we know. No, 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 this is just a path. Whatever it looks like, you guys, we have a way to be found by God. We are found by God. Jesus found a way 
for us to be in the presence of God. And when we allow ourselves to watch his passion, watch his love, his weeping, his anger, all of the breadth of Jesus's emotion, we see the very love of God in passion that we would be found by God, that we would find the path that's already been laid. And so this week, as we enter into Holy Week, I want us to consider what that might mean to accept a path regardless of what we think it's supposed to feel like or look like. Sometimes the Christian faith, you think it's supposed to feel or look a certain way. And you hear these promises like, I will be found by you. And you think, how come it doesn't feel like it? Maybe you struggle with with shame or like the struggle where you feel like, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but I don't feel it. Like all of those things. I would say to you this as just a consideration. Sometimes our acceptance of a path is a commitment and a decision. And when we claim that we know that path has been made clear, that's the step of faith. Thank you, Jesus. The path has been made clear regardless of if I feel it. Thank you that none of these messages about what I still should be ashamed of have any credibility because you opened a door and God of all of scripture has said, he will be found by me. God will be found by us. And the path has been laid. Nothing else needs to be done. And that's what we celebrate in the passion of Jesus in this week. Jesus, we thank you that a path has been laid. I pray that you would take our doubts at that statement. You would just love us through them. I thank you that you've had the breadth of emotion, that you've known so much about anger and sadness and heartache and anticipation and all of that and you just resolutely walked to make a way where we could not forge a path sometimes god it's really great when we can feel and know your presence but god even when we can't feel it i pray that you holy spirit would give us strength to acknowledge it because the path is there regardless of our feelings and we thank you jesus for that we pray that as we enter into this particular week that we would just ponder your passion and see it as the very love of God over us, over this community, over this world who's looking for a path. Jesus, help us to say yes and amen to your way. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.